Hey, it's Guy here. So today's show is all about the hidden things in our world and the people who go looking for them. And it first aired in March of 2016, but this time around, we're trying something different. We've gone back to one of our speakers, and we got an update on where her amazing project has gone since we last spoke. She's an archaeologist who uses satellite technology to search for hidden traces of past civilizations, and she does it with the help of thousands of citizen scientists. This episode is called, what else? Hidden. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about the things that are hidden all around us and how technology and sometimes just old-fashioned sleuthing are helping to uncover more and more of our invisible world. Later in the show, we'll hear an update from space archaeologist Sarah Parkak on what she's uncovered since we last spoke and who she's been working with. I'm Doris Jones. I'm 91 years old. And... Uh, I'm an armchair archaeologist. But first, a little experiment with a bag of chips. These ones are uh, kettle cooked. And what this bag of chips is about to reveal is just how much of our world is hidden. Does it work with Doritos? You know, I don't think we tried Doritos. I suspect so. Lay's, I'm assuming, will work fine. We have done Lay's, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> so this is the guy who did the experiment with chips. I'm Abe Davis. I'm a PhD candidate at MIT. As for what Abe's studying, let's just say it has to do with hidden information. And before we tell you about Abe's chip experiment, there's something you need to know, and it's a basic truth of our physical world. And it's a truth that enables Abe to do his work. Uh, it turns out that most things, most of the time, are moving a little bit. To put this another way, almost everything around us is constantly, almost imperceptibly, vibrating. But in a way that is totally invisible to us. You know, our visual system is sort of tuned to pay attention to certain things, and likewise, it's tuned to ignore certain things. Yeah. For instance, really tiny motions or really fast motions, these are things that we don't typically see with our eyes. Yeah, like a hummingbird's wings. Like, we don't see the flap, 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 flap. We just see, like, a, a hummingbird body and just, like, this weird kind of thing around it. Yeah. But just like we can use cameras to capture the movement of a hummingbird's wings... Abe Davis uses cameras to capture teeny tiny vibrations, vibrations that are normally hidden from us, but that surround us all the time. Caused by sound. Sound. So I'm sitting here in the studio, and I, I have this uh, mug of tea. It's not, it's not moving. You're telling me that the tea is vibrating just from the sound of my voice? Oh, yeah. Really? Always. So, yeah. so what happens? What, what, what do you do with that movement? You, you actually point a camera at it? Yeah. So that image of that mug of tea, to us, if we look at even the image, probably won't look like it's moving at all. 
because the actual motion is going to be a lot smaller than even a single pixel. But if it moves by just a fraction of a fraction of a pixel, then some of these pixels that see the monk will get just a little bit brighter and some will get just a little bit darker. And we can analyze that very subtle change and we can actually recover this information from it. And then translate that information into, into what? Well, in this case, into sound. Okay, people, this is huge. So listen closely, because what Abe is saying here is that almost any object in the world around you can become a microphone. And with a pretty ordinary video camera and the right lighting, you could shoot silent video of an object and then analyze the tiny, imperceptible motion in the video and translate that motion into sound, into words even. Now, until recently, this was all theoretical, which is how Abe wound up standing in his lab one day, screaming at a bag of potato chips in a video he shared on the TED stage. Three, two, one, go. Mary had a little lamb. Little lamb, little lamb. So this experiment looks completely ridiculous. I mean, I'm screaming at a bag of chips, and we're blasting it with so much light, we literally melted the first bag we tried this on. But ridiculous as this experiment looks, it was actually really important, because with the right algorithms, we can take this silent, seemingly still video, and we can recover this sound. And this was really significant, because it was the first time we recovered intelligible human speech from silent video of an object. And gradually, we could start to modify the experiment, using different objects or less light or quieter sounds. And that led to experiments like this one, where again, I'm going to speak to a bag of chips, but this time we've moved our camera about 15 feet away, outside, behind a soundproof window. And the whole thing is lit by only natural sunlight. And this is what things sounded like from inside, next to the bag of chips. Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, that lamb was sure to go. And here's what we were able to recover from our silent video captured outside behind that window. Okay, Abe, we should explain this to, to people listening because what you've done here is you've taken silent video of the chips uh, and then using a computer algorithm, you analyze the tiny vibrations in the bag, <laughs> you extract the sound that caused those tiny vibrations in the first place, all from a bag of chips. Yep, just a bag of chips. This is incredible. I mean, it's... Enticing. Yeah. Why do you think that is? <sighs> I mean, speaking personally, uh, it's exciting to sort of discover this whole new world of information. I mean, you could imagine a future where nothing is hidden anymore. Or somebody just sitting, having a quiet conversation next to a, an empty bag of chips <laughs> is being listened to. 
you know, it's, it, it's interesting. It, it's easy for the mind to go there, right? It's easy to imagine, oh, man, this gives me access to this information. So, therefore, this information, you know, can no longer hide. Yeah. But I think what's going to happen now that we know the information is there, the information is everywhere. And it's in such abundance. And we just, nobody has the resources to look at all of it. It's like telling people, I know that there's a needle in this haystack. Um, that doesn't mean you're going to find it. But now we can find it. That's the thing. Like, there's no way that, like, intelligence agencies aren't excited by this. Like, there's no way. <laughs> this is technology that could disrupt the way they operate. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think that if you invested enough, then this does potentially open up some new doors. Yeah. Whew. Is that, is that a sufficiently vague answer? I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of the potential is in other kinds of information. It's not hard to imagine how you might use this technology to spy on someone. But keep in mind that there's already a lot of very mature technology out there for surveillance. In fact, people have been using lasers to eavesdrop on objects from a distance for decades. But what's really new here, what's really different, is that now we have a way to picture the vibrations of an object, which gives us a new lens through which to look at the world. And we can use that lens to learn not just about forces like sound that cause an object to vibrate, but also about the object itself. And you can imagine, for instance, looking at an old bridge and wondering what would happen, how would that bridge hold up if I were to drive my car across it? And you know, that's a question that you probably want to answer before you start driving across that bridge. We've just started to scratch the surface of what you can do with this kind of imaging. Because it gives us a new way to capture our surroundings with common, accessible technology. And so, looking to the future, it's going to be really exciting to explore what this can tell us about the world. Thank you. Abe Davis, he's a computer scientist. You can see his entire TED Talk, and you really should, because it's super visual and really cool, at TED.com. Um, can you, can you uh, remind us what you are, are best known for? Well, I'm best known for finding the Titanic. There is no more famous shipwreck in the world, and the discovery of the Titanic in the Atlantic off the coast of Canada. Historians have waited nearly three quarters of a century to see. Just the Titanic, you know, nothing, no, no big deal. Just like an afternoon of work. Well, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a discovery. It was lost and found. The expedition's director, Robert Ballard, described the images. Robert Ballard, call me Bob, is an oceanographer. He found the Titanic back in 1985. And since then, he spent his career exploring a place most of us don't give much thought to. The ocean. The 72% of our planet that is covered in water, and most of it completely unexplored. There's a lot down there, and there's a lot we don't know that's down there. You know, there's bigger mountain ranges underwater than uh, above water. There's canyons down there that make the Grand Canyon look like a ditch. And there's thousands and thousands of volcanoes, and there's more history in the deep sea than all the museums of the world combined. In fact, the greatest mountain range on Earth lies below the ocean's surface. It's called the Mid-Ocean Ridge. And as Bob Ballard explained from the TED stage, we've known about it for a long time. 
but no one had actually gone down into the actual site of boundary of creation, as we call it, into the Rift Valley, till a group of seven of us crawled in our little submarines in the summer of 1973, 1974, and were the first human beings to enter the Great Rift Valley. Almost a quarter of our planet is a single mountain range, and we didn't enter it until after Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin went to the moon. So we went to the moon, played golf up there, before we went to the largest feature on our own planet. We went down into the Rift Valley, and it's pitch black. It's absolutely pitch black because photons cannot reach the average depth of the ocean, which is 12,000 feet. Most of our planet does not feel the warmth of the sun. Most of our planet is in eternal darkness. And for that reason, you do not have photosynthesis in the deep sea. And with the absence of photosynthesis, you have no plant life, and as a result, you have very little animal life living in this underworld, or so we thought. We discovered a profusion of life in a world that it should not exist. A giant tube worms, 10 feet tall. I remember having to use vodka, my own vodka, to pickle it because we don't carry formaldehyde. We went and found these incredible clam beds uh, sitting on the barren rock, large clams. And when we opened them, they didn't look like a clam. And when we cut them open, they didn't have the anatomy of a clam. No mouth, no gut, no digestive system. Their bodies had, had been totally taken over by another organism, a bacterium that had figured out how to replicate photosynthesis in the dark through a process we now call chemosynthesis. None of it in our textbooks. Bob Ballard coming up. His plan to fill those textbooks faster than we ever have before. That's in just a minute. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to TIAA. In the past three years, TIAA has shared $10 billion in profits, not with shareholders, but with participants, TIAA retirement plan customers. And for years, it's provided personalized financial advice at no extra cost, regardless of the size of their accounts. TIAA gives back to participants so participants can give back to the world. Learn more at TIAA.org. Thanks also to Microsoft Surface Laptop. If you want to be productive but are out and about all day, meet the all-new Surface Go, the smallest Microsoft Surface ever. It's just over a pound and has a 10-inch touchscreen. This new Surface Go has the performance of a laptop but also the portability of a tablet. The Surface Go easily adapts to all your needs, from running office to helping you take care of everyday tasks. So what are you waiting for? It's time to go. This is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. The Emmy Awards are coming up, so this week we're listening back to interviews with some nominees and people whose shows are nominated, like Issa Rae, Jake Tapper, Brian Tyree Henry, Tim Gunn, and Stephen Colbert. So check out this week's Emmy series on Fresh Air. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, hidden ideas about how things we can't see are sometimes right in front of us or even shaping our behavior. And before the break, we were hearing from ocean explorer Robert Ballard, who's found giant worms, massive clams taken over by parasites, new life forms that we had never seen before. And oh, yeah, the Titanic. So what, what else do you think is down there? I don't know. 
I didn't know there were 13-foot worms that had new life forms that had another creature in their body that had taken over their body and was inhaling poisonous hydrogen sulfide. Who would have ever dreamed that? And the most horrible science fiction movie in the world would have never done that to a worm. And yet it's real. Does it drive you crazy to think that there are all these hidden things that are yet to be discovered and, and that- yeah. I mean, I, I never grew up. See, I, I used to be—I used to always look under rocks for salamanders, and you know, I love discovering things. The human being. Imagine, okay, you, you open your eyes and you're in a room. Okay, okay. do that right now. You're gonna right. close your eyes and okay. then you open them, and, right. and there's a door. How fast are you gonna go to that door? Uh, fast. Fast. Really fast. Yeah. That's us. We want to know what's on the other side of the door. Right. It's Alice's looking glass. Yeah. It's 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 we're programmed to want to know what's on the other side of that door. But for ocean explorers like Bob Ballard, that door is miles away, straight down at the bottom of the ocean. You can only go up and down so fast, so you spend all your time up and downing. Which means for the 25 years he spent exploring the ocean with a submarine, Bob has spent a lot of that time just getting to the places he's trying to learn about. Well, imagine a day at the office, okay? Six hours to commute to work, six hours to get home. How long are you going to stay at work? Like minutes, okay? And you and you still had a 12-hour day. That's why I'm trying to accelerate it. So the best way to accelerate the time it takes to get to the bottom of the ocean is not to go at all, but instead to send robots. What are called UUVs or AUVs, autonomous vehicle systems. That don't have to come up and down all the time but they can spend days, even weeks, underwater. That's what's going to be the force multiplier. That's what's going to accelerate everything. When we just build these massive numbers of swarms of vehicle systems that are swarming under the ocean. And that's that's soon. So you can sit in a lab in Rhode Island or Connecticut or sub-Saharan Africa, wherever you are, and you can work with this underwater robot and explore yeah. the ocean. Yeah, I can, I can put it on my cell phone. And last year, one of Bob Ballard's robots called Hercules was off the coast of Louisiana in the Gulf of Mexico when something amazing happened. So we're, we're down in the Gulf of Mexico and we're doing this thing. We're going to take a super sample at all of those holes. And then a Each adolescent sperm whale comes in at a couple thousand feet and the heck is that says hello oh my god oh my goodness what is that oh, guys oh, look at guys, it guys oh. we have a humpback whale uh, we need to uh, listen to how we transformed into children i'm gonna turn the m3 off in a nanosecond he's gonna bump you no he's bumping us well, we have a sperm whale he's me it's okay Zoom out on our Wow. The wow. Start counting wows. Uh, awesome. <laughs> oh, wow. I hope we are screen grabbing. Often you hear a sign that go, wow. As far as I can oh, beautiful. Oh, wow. Holy cow. Wow. And so where, where were you guys while, while this was all happening? I was in my house when it happened. Oh. Watching. You're in your house, and this robot is like thousands of, hundreds of miles away from you. Thousands of miles away from me. And that's kind of the idea, that a group of scientists thousands of miles away can feel like they're there in a world hidden from view. And with more and more robots exploring the ocean, Bob Ballard says it might not be hidden much longer. I mean, I envy the generation in middle school right now. I'm going to be eclipsed by some kid in eighth grade. 
that's going to have the technologies to to do a thousand times more exploration than I've been able to do because of the advent of new technologies where they don't have to physically do it. They can move at amazing speeds. And now with autonomous vehicles, underwater drones just really pouring into the ocean now, you're going to see the rate of discovery in the ocean skyrocket. Robert Ballard, he's an ocean explorer. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. Next up, parasites. We think of parasites as small degenerate things, right? They're, they're kind of biology's B-listers. They, they have these weird, obscure lifestyles where they're just sitting there, sucking blood or draining nutrients, whatever, and that's all they do. This is Ed Young. He's a science writer. A science writer at The Atlantic and a blogger at National Geographic. You are a journalist. I am a journalist. A lot of people think journalists are parasites. <laughs> that's, that's probably fair. And, uh, and fitting because you write a lot about parasites. That's right. I am a parasite of parasite scientists. <laughs> anyway, to Ed Young, parasites are not biology's B-listers because they actually exert a hidden control over almost everything in the natural world, including us. Every living thing has its own parasites. A virus will count as a parasite. Some bacteria count. We can scale up to ticks and parasitic worms. There are wasps. There are fungi. A, a huge proportion of living things are parasites themselves. They exert this enormous influence on the world around us. They shape ecosystems and they change minds and manipulate behavior. Parasites. That's right. And, and I think um, the idea that these very simple creatures could be manipulating and influencing things with sophisticated brains and cognition, that's quite shocking to people, I think. And frankly, it was shocking to Ed as well when he first became obsessed with parasites about a decade ago. And he explained how that obsession began on the TED stage. And just a quick note, Ed shows a lot of pictures during this talk, and it's probably for the best that you can't see them on the radio because they're actually kind of gross. Okay, here's Ed's TED Talk. Now, I first learned about this way of life uh, through David Attenborough's Trials of Life about 20 years ago, and then later through a wonderful book called Parasite Rex by my friend Carl Zimmer. And I've been writing about these creatures ever since. Few topics in biology enthrall me more. It's like the parasites have subverted my own brain. <laughs> because after all, they are always compelling, and they are delightfully macabre. When you write about parasites, your lexicon swells with phrases like devoured alive and bursts out of its body. But there's more to it than that. I'm, I'm a writer, and fellow writers in the audience will know that we love stories. And parasites invite us to resist the allure of obvious stories. Their world is one of plot twists and unexpected explanations. Why, for example, does this caterpillar start violently thrashing about when another insect gets close to it and those white cocoons that it seems to be standing guard over? Is it maybe protecting its siblings? No. This caterpillar was attacked by a parasitic wasp which laid eggs inside it. The eggs hatched and the young wasp devoured the caterpillar alive before bursting out of its body. <laughs> now, um, 
some of the wasps seemed to stay behind and controlled it into defending their siblings, which are metamorphosing into adults within those cocoons. This caterpillar is a head-banging zombie bodyguard defending the offspring of the creature that killed it. There are actually quite a few examples of parasite-recruited bodyguards. Um, there's a ladybug that stands guard over this, like, these silken cocoons yeah. of uh, wasps uh, that have parasitized it. Um, so there seems to be seems to be a theme. Like, you kill a thing, you turn it into a guardian for your young. I mean, if there is this hidden force, right? Mm-hmm. There are all these parasites that change the behavior of different species. How do we even know what's real and what's not? How do we know what normal behavior is and what what isn't? You know, I think the point is that this is normal behavior. This is just part of what's going on in the world around us. Um, I think we would be wrong to think of these as oddities, as like rare parts of the world. Normal behavior is a spectrum that includes what parasites do to us. You know, I... I am often not a fun person to to like go nature watching with now because whenever I see an animal doing something weird, I think like a friend of mine showed me this video of like a stoat, oh, what? like a weasel bouncing about, right. hopping really happily, going, "Oh look, isn't it cute?" Yeah. I'm like, I think a parasite. Parasite. You're parasite. like that. That I'm is like, a. That's like a rabid, crazy animal. Yeah, that animal is doing something. You've very completely strange. destroyed the cuteness of it. Oh, you you think that's cute? Let me just shank your feelings. Wow. That's cruel. (laughs) That's right, yeah. This cricket swallowed the larva of a Gordian worm, or horsehair worm. The worm grew to adult size within it, but it needs to get into water in order to mate. And it does that by releasing proteins that addle the cricket's brain, causing it to behave erratically. When the cricket nears a body of water, such as this swimming pool, it jumps in and drowns and the worm wriggles out of its suicidal corpse. One Japanese scientist called Takuya Soto found that in one stream, these things drive so many crickets and grasshoppers into the water that the drowned insects make up some 60% of the diet of local trout. Manipulation is not an oddity. It is a critical and common part of the world around us. Crazy to think how parasites, you know, aren't just like changing the behavior for the sake of being subversive, but they're actually like driving ecosystems. I I think that's one of the things I love about this, that you start seeing the natural world in a different light. Whenever we look at an animal doing something, when we ask why is it doing that, um, you always assume that it's in control of its own behavior, right? And we don't think that, oh, maybe something is controlling it, like something we can't see. And I think the the wonderful thing about parasite biology is that it invites you to think about that. It gives you a different lens through which to view the world. And it's a scary lens, but but a cool one, I think. Which, of course, leads us to a troubling question. Could there be parasites influencing us? Well, Ed Young says there's one that could be in you right now, or maybe in your cat. It's called Toxoplasma gondii. Or Toxo for short, because the terrifying creature always deserves a cute nickname. Toxo infects mammals, a wide variety of mammals, but it can only sexually reproduce in a cat. 
And scientists like Joanne Webster have shown that if Toxo gets into a rat or a mouse, it turns the rodent into a cat-seeking missile. If the infected rat smells the delightful odor of cat piss, it runs towards the source of the smell rather than the more sensible direction of away. <laughs> the cat eats the rat, Toxo gets to have sex, it's a classic tale of eat, pray, love. <laughs> We're very charitable, generous people. Right, this thing is a single cell. This is no nervous system, it is no consciousness, it doesn't even have a body, but it's manipulating a mammal. We are mammals, we are more intelligent than a mere rat, to be sure, but our brains have the same basic structure, the same types of cells, the same chemicals running through them, and the same parasites. Um, estimates vary a lot, but some figures suggest that one in three people around the world have toxo in their brains. Now, typically, this doesn't lead to any overt illness, but there's some evidence that those people who are carriers have slightly score slightly differently on personality questionnaires than other people, that they have a slightly higher risk of car accidents, and there's some evidence that people with schizophrenia are more likely to be infected. Now, I think this evidence is still inconclusive, and even among toxo-researchers, opinion is divided as to whether the parasite is truly influencing our behavior. But given the widespread nature of such manipulations, it would be completely implausible for humans to be the only species that weren't similarly affected. You hear about how all of these parasites manipulate behavior in creatures. Mm -hmm. And then it does kind of make you question free will, right? I mean, especially among us. Yeah, and, and I, think, I think that has really interesting philosophical implications, right? Like, how much of your actions are under your own control? I still would say, like, most. But what we can say, I think, is that it's entirely plausible that our behavior um, could be affected by parasites. But I don't think we should freak out at the concept that we might sometimes make decisions not entirely of our own volition. I'm freaking out. <laughs> you freaking out? Yeah. It's because I made you freak out. Yeah, you, you did. <laughs> this capacity to constantly subvert our way of thinking about the world makes parasites amazing. They're constantly inviting us to look at the natural world sideways and to ask if the behaviors we're seeing, whether they're simple and obvious or baffling and puzzling, are not the results of individuals acting through their own accord, but because they are being bent to the control of something else. And while that idea may be disquieting, and while parasites' habits may be very grisly, I think that ability to surprise us makes them as wonderful and as charismatic as any panda or butterfly or dolphin. But perhaps that's just a parasite talking. Thank you. Science journalist Ed Young, he's got a new book coming out soon called I Contain Multitudes. It's all about microbes. Watch his full talk at TED.com. Today on the show, ideas about the hidden things in our world and the people who uncover them. My name is Sarah Parkak. I am a professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and founder of Global Explorer. And an archaeologist. Yes, very much so an archaeologist. But you do something even deeper than that. Yes, so I use satellites to map ancient landscapes and discover archaeological features that we then go out and explore and excavate. 
Sarah is a space archaeologist. Yes. She uses satellite technology to search for traces of past civilizations that have been hidden beneath the Earth for thousands of years. It seems like every couple of days there are these amazing new discoveries that are being made using diverse technologies all over the world. Now with satellites, what you can do is from thousands of miles away from any site, you can get a real sense of what's there. You know, by processing the image using different parts of the light spectrum, you can bring out hidden or subtle differences in the soil or vegetation that make otherwise completely hidden structures and features pop out so you can be much more strategic about um, the work that you're doing on the ground. Back in 2016, Sarah Parkak received the $1 million TED Prize for her work. Sarah explained how she planned to use the money from the TED stage. I wish for us to discover the millions of unknown archaeological sites around the world. By creating a 21st century army of global explorers, we'll find and protect the world's hidden heritage. So how are we going to do this? We are going to build an online, crowdsourced citizen science platform to allow anyone in the world to engage with discovering archaeological sites. By creating this platform, we will find the millions of places occupied by the billions of people that came before us. Acknowledging that the past is worth saving means so much more. It means that we're worth saving, too. And the greatest story ever told is the story of our shared human journey. But the only way that we're going to be able to write it is if we do it together. So, okay, so Sarah, you gave this talk back in 2016. How did you come up with the idea? So when I started teaching at my university and started collaborating more and and really traveling around the world, I just realized the disparity between people that have access to archaeology and history and those that just grow up without any connections to their past. Um, And that made me think, we need to start connecting people more to the past. We don't own this. The world owns its its history collectively. Um, so that's really where the idea for Global Explorer was born. So I guess your idea was, let's make this as widely accessible as possible, not only to involve ordinary people in archaeology, but I guess from a practical standpoint, to just get as many eyes on these images as possible because more eyes can identify more things. That's correct. So the idea being, is it possible to train anyone from ages 5 to 105 to look at satellite imagery and help identify shapes and features that could potentially be archaeological? And on a given day, if I'm really focused, I can look at about 100 square kilometers of satellite imagery. That's about 10 kilometers by 10 kilometers. And after a couple hours, you start getting eye fatigue. You miss things really, really easily. So the idea being, could you potentially get the crowd or people around the world helping you find things? And we absolutely need the help. We have a whole world to explore. And there aren't enough of us to do it by ourselves. When we come back, we'll hear more from Sarah on the launch of Global Explorer. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, ideas about our hidden world. You're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to a few of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Smartwater. 
SmartWater aims to go beyond what others are doing. Taking inspiration from the clouds themselves, SmartWater one-ups them by adding electrolytes for a clean, crisp taste. SmartWater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. Thanks also to American Express. Lots of people have great ideas, but turning ideas into reality is tricky. Far fewer people do that, and it's even harder for them to do it alone. Whether those people need big strategic thinking or day-to-day -day business help, American Express believes support is part of the magic formula. After all, there's no I in we. No matter what your idea, big or small, you don't have to go it alone because American Express has your back. Don't live life without it. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about our hidden world. And we're just hearing from space archaeologist Sarah Parkak and how she launched Global Explorer. It's an online program that uses crowdsourcing to study millions of satellite images, hoping to discover hidden archaeological sites. Global Explorer now has more than 75,000 users worldwide, including Doris Jones. I'm Doris Jones. I'm 91 years old. I live in Cleveland, Ohio, with two 11-year-old cats. And uh, I'm an armchair archaeologist. So wait, let, let me understand this. Basically, what happens is you get sent a photograph taken from a satellite of a patch of Earth. Right. And you look at that patch of Earth, and you're looking for patterns that might be a little bit uh, unnatural. Right. And how many images do you think you've looked at? Well, it took a number of months, but I uh, managed to hang in there long enough to do uh, 51,888. Wow. So I earned the rank of a space archaeologist. <laughs> how, did you, how did you even get interested in archaeology from the start? I was into paleontology for almost 40 years. I had a business, and I, uh, re, you know, I dug fossils and, and uh, identified them and traveled around and sold them. So, you know, it, it's kind of a parallel science, I think. Sarah's looking for civilizations and people, and I'm looking for fossils, you know, and then that type of thing. Huh. And, of course, you have to learn a certain amount of geology in order, you know, to to do either of those. So I, I kind of consider them to be like a parallel science. I love science. I love history. I mean, what is the biggest, aside from just your just sheer interest, what is the biggest reason why you're doing this? Well, say I'm 91 years old. I don't drive anymore. So I need something to do, and I like to stay busy. And there's a thrill in the hunt, you know. We're always searching for something there. I think, you know, that, that's, that's part of life that maybe everyone doesn't enjoy, but I always have. Well, Doris, thank you so much for hopping on the phone with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. So, I mean, Sarah, it's pretty incredible, right, to hear Doris's story and, and all this work that she's doing with Global Explorer. She's amazing. I've had the chance to Skype with her, and she's like a bright spark in the universe. When we launched this platform, you know, we, we didn't know would the platform work? Would it, you know, be accessible to people of all ages and backgrounds and experiences? Um, you know, would even if it worked, would they actually, 
not only find things, but find things that archaeologists didn't know were there. Could this data be useful to archaeologists working on the ground? So we started in Peru. So this was launched in January of 2017. And what's really cool is that our users to date have found over 19,000 uh, what we're calling anthropogenic features, so man-made features. Wow. And they found hundreds and hundreds of sites in Peru, that major sites that are not in any known archaeological databases. Um, so to me, the most exciting part of this project has been not only that we've had this amazing participation from around the world, but we've been giving this data to archaeologists who work for the Ministry of Culture in Peru. They've been able to take the data, they've gone out, and they've done uh, extensive survey work, and they've found some pretty amazing things. Do, do you think that we're sort of approaching a, a time where, at least from an, an archaeological perspective, nothing will be hidden anymore? Well, that's the thing about archaeology. It, there's always so many surprises. So there are potentially millions and millions of archaeological sites out there. And that's just the ones on the surface. What do we do from there? Yeah. What I'm hoping the platform helps people to do is really kind of inspires this idea of like where the field can go in not just five years or 10 years, but in 100 years. What is that archaeological future that we're all moving towards? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm trying to, given the state of things today, imagine what a world would look like when the leaders of our planet think very deeply about all these past cultures and peoples that came before us and use all that information to make far better and more informed decisions about the future of our planet. The past has so much to teach us, but we're, we're missing a lot of data right now. Um, and I'm hoping that, that platforms like Global Explorer and, and all these new discoveries can help inspire our leaders um, to make better choices so that we're around in 100,000 years. Sarah Parkak, she's a space archaeologist. You can learn more about her work at globalexplorer.org. And you can see all of her talks at TED.com. Today on the show, hidden things, hidden places, and why we humans feel compelled to look for them, even if they're not on any map. I love that you've mentioned that this is all about hidden spaces, or hidden, hidden things, hidden spaces, hidden places. Because... It's funny, we, we don't realize how much is hidden in our everyday. This is Andres Russo. And I am a geoscientist specializing in geothermal systems. Andres's work is about forces deep below the Earth, heat, lava, rock, and how they influence the world above. I mean, you're in D.C., so one of my favorite things to do is just walk around this Washington, D.C., and look at all of the different rocks that make the buildings that make that city. Yeah. You have this entire geologic history right in front of you. But not all geologic forces are hidden in plain sight. And years ago, Andres heard a story about a force that wasn't only hidden, but its very existence seemed impossible. It all starts with this legend. Here's Andres on the TED stage. As a boy in Lima... My grandfather told me a legend of the Spanish conquest of Peru. Pizarro and his conquistadors has grown rich, 
and tales of their conquest and glory had reached Spain and was bringing new waves of Spaniards hungry for gold. They would go into towns and ask the Inca, where's another civilization we could conquer? Where's more gold? And the Inca, out of vengeance, told them, go to the Amazon. You'll find all the gold you want there. In fact, there is a city called Paititi, El Dorado in Spanish, made entirely of gold. The Spanish set off into the jungle, but the few that return come back with stories. Stories of powerful shamans, of warriors with poisoned arrows, of trees so tall they blotted out the sun, spiders that ate birds, snakes that swallowed men whole, and a river that boiled. All this became a childhood memory, and years passed. I'm working on my PhD at SMU, trying to understand Peru's geothermal energy potential, when I remember this legend, and I began asking that question. Could the boiling river exist? I asked colleagues from universities, the government, oil, gas, and mining companies, and the answer was, well, a unanimous no. And <laughs> this makes sense. You see, boiling rivers do exist in the world, but they're generally associated with volcanoes. And we don't have volcanoes in the Amazon, nor in most of Peru, so it follows. We should not expect to see a boiling river. Telling this same story at a family dinner, my aunt tells me, but no, Andres, I've been there. <laughs> then my uncle jumps in, no, Andres, she's not kidding. And then he starts describing a, you know, something as wide as a river flowing at a powerful flow rate, as wide as a two-lane road, about, you know, 190 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, that, that got my attention as far as way too many details to be made up. So at that point, did you say, I have got to go there. I've got to find this place. Yeah, absolutely. I was, the first thing I did was grab my iPhone and start looking for everything I could online. But what was bizarre is I couldn't find, I couldn't find anything. There was nothing? No, nothing. Okay, one thing here. If it existed, the river would be hot enough to kill anything that falls into it. And that kind of heat doesn't happen without a volcano. And the nearest volcano was hundreds of miles away. So Andres says to his aunt, if this river is for real, can you show it to me? So the next day, she gave me the telephone number and the email of, of her contacts. She used to do indigenous rights work and had made friends with the wife of this powerful shaman who guards over the boiling river. And she goes, look, if you really want to see this thing, we need to go into the jungle, and I will personally lead you out there. So from Lima, Peru, they got on a plane. From Lima, there's a one-hour flight to Pucallpa. It's a city in the Amazon, and from there? It was about two hours driving. Most of it was on a dirt road, then about 30 minutes by Peque Peque. Peque Peque is a motorized canoe. Then finally, a two-hour walk through the jungle. The shaman's apprentice was leading us, and my aunt and I were, were pretty tired. When suddenly, in, you know, we're quiet, you can just hear heavy breathing. But I start to hear like a distant roar, like a rumble, a, a surge. I look over to the shaman's apprentice and I ask him, hey man, like, what is that? And he looks at me and he says, it's, it's the river. And he just kind of laughs and goes, go. 
So I bolt down the path, and I, I end up standing on this small cliff off the river. So imagine this beautiful turquoise blue water flanked on either side by these ivory-colored stones, and then 60-foot walls of green, these huge, massive trees just flanking either side. And it's flowing hot, most of it hot enough to kill you, for just under four miles. So it's a huge amount of water. The river flowed hot and fast. I followed it upriver and was led by actually the shaman's apprentice to the most sacred site on the river. And this is what's bizarre. It starts off as a cold stream. And here, at this site, is the home of the Yakumama, mother of the waters, a giant serpent spirit who births hot and cold water. And here, we find a hot spring mixing with cold stream water underneath her protective motherly jaws and thus bring their legends to life. How can a boiling river exist like this? I've asked geothermal experts and volcanologists for years, and I'm still unable to find another non-volcanic geothermal system of this magnitude. There's still more research to be done. But from what the data is telling us now, it looks to be the result of a large hydrothermal system. The deeper you go into the Earth, the hotter it gets. We refer to this as the geothermal gradient. The waters could be coming as far away as glaciers in the Andes, then seeping down deep into the Earth and coming out to form the boiling river after getting heated up from that geothermal gradient. Now, what was amazing is that the locals had always known about this place, and that I was by no means the first outsider to see it. It was just part of their everyday life. They drink its water, they take in its vapor, they cook with it, clean with it, even make their medicines with it. It's unique. It's special on a global scale. I mean, here's, here's the thing, like, we think of our world as totally mapped and, and discovered, and, and this wasn't. This was, I mean, people knew about it, but it was totally hidden, basically, from the world. Mm -hmm. how, how is that possible? So it's curious, because even the shaman, the main shaman there, he even says there was never a community in the distant past, is what he says, at the Boiling River area because it was seen as a place of spirits. Hmm. So very few people would want to go there out of fear for the spirits. Huh. But then the final thing is the jungle is still remote. And yeah, I am the first scientist to be given the shaman's blessing to study their site and help them bring it to the world. Do, do you ever have like a, a, like a moment where you worry that by bringing it out of hiding that, you know, other people will discover it and then it might, it might like ruin it? So... Bringing it to the world like this is a little nerve-wracking because it's – I love this place. It's one of the most beautiful spots I've ever seen, especially at night. You know, imagine more stars than you can possibly imagine fit into the night sky and you're laying on a rock that's naturally warm. So you are just blanketed by these clouds of warm vapor. So you're in this natural sauna hearing every animal in the, in the jungle just calling out and singing. It feels like you're in a dream. And 
the threat of it getting touristy really, really saddens me. But at the same token, these people want to make a living. So are we going to let the easiest way to make money in the area be to truly exploit the jungle and not leave a single tree standing? Or are we going to try to empower these local people to set up their tourism so that they can they can really dictate their own destiny? My goal is to ensure that whoever controls this land understands the Boiling River's uniqueness and significance. And in this age, where everything seems mapped, measured, and studied, in this age of information, I remind you all, there remains so much to explore. So go out, be curious. Because we do live in a world where shamans still sing to the spirits of the jungle, where rivers do boil, and where legends do come to life. Thank you very much. Andreas Russo is a geophysicist. He's finishing his PhD at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. His new book about this is called The Boiling River Adventure and Discovery in the Amazon. And you can see his entire talk at TED.com. Thanks for listening to our show this week, all about our hidden world. If you want to find out more about who's on it, go to ted.npr.org. You can see hundreds more TED Talks at ted.com. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpour, and Kelly Prime, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Maria Paz Gutierrez. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, you can write us at tedradiohour at npr.org. And you can follow us on Twitter. It's at tedradiohour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. NPR.